This episode is brought to you by the generosity of our listeners. My grandchild was actually sold for crack to a drug dealer, and the police raided the house. That's how I found him. Because I went to that fathering class, I knew the things to do. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. This is your co-host, Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. We're welcoming you to this episode to put your faith to work and your bold ideas to bring them to life. We are very excited today. We have just a wonderful conversation set up for you here. Actually, a, a remarkable transformation story. You're going to hear from John Turnipseed. Now, he's the campus pastor and EVP at Urban Ventures. But how he got there is a remarkable story. He has a passion for fathering because he had a father who just went absent and abusive and all the rest, and it's not an uncharacteristic story for many people. But where it led John Turnipseed was to be a gang leader of 300 or so odd people here in Minnesota back in the 90s, and it was an incredible story. He is the author of that story, his biography called Bloodline. He's been featured in several films. He's given a TEDx talk on that topic of fathering, and he also serves on the board of the Minnesota Volunteers of America and Mad Dads, Men Against Destruction. And he has a wonderful life story Really quite a remarkable, dramatic life story that uh, you don't want to miss. And so we are so we are so honored and so excited to welcome to the program John Turnipseed. John, welcome to the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm so glad to have you. Been looking forward to uh, talking to you and really to get, um, I think, probably a thumbnail of your life story because how could, I mean, you've been through quite a bit and your life journey. And uh, I know just from the snippets and some of the things that I've seen online from you, just quite a tremendous background that you've had and it's really a transformation. Let's start there before we dive in on what you're doing today. Let's talk about where you've been. Where I've been in my 63 years on earth, grew up in Selma, Alabama, very great, great family life, everything. And for seven years, I was basically in heaven on earth with my mother and father. And that changed, came up to Minnesota. My father moved up here, and he changed and absolutely ruined our family. Mm. Um, we went from just a great family that you could have on TV, Christian, church, you know, God-fearing, everybody loving each other, to a destructive, very destructive family. And finally, morphing into one of the most infamous families in Minnesota. We formed the, the largest gang in Minnesota, and, and they even had to call the National Guard in. So going from a church kid in Alabama to an infamous criminal my lifetime. Yeah, you know, you were one of the founders of the Bloods, is that right? And I was one of the founders of our family okay. and stuff. When their family came up here and, and the gang started coming at us, I was one of the guys that said, we have to organize. We have to be, we're blood relatives. And the blood name was never a part of the California Bloods. It was okay. about relatives and gotcha. stuff. And it was about protecting each other. Well, power corrupts absolutely. You've heard that one. Mm -hmm. And once we start gaining a sense of power, then that's when the gang activity started. Well, how old were you at that time? Uh, eight, 17, 18. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's an early start. What happened to your dad to cause 
the change? I mean, you said you grew up in Alabama, you're Bible and God-loving family, and and then something so transformational happened when you came to Minnesota. Now, it can't be the harsh climate here, so yeah. what, what was it? <laughs> well, he was up here for a year by himself, and we don't know what transpired in that year, but I later found out that he robbed someone and went to the jail for a year. Mm. He got out of jail, and he got a job, but he started drinking, and he had never drank before. So my father was a deacon in the church, and now when we got up here, he no longer went to church, and he drank every day, and he was violent. Mm. I don't know what happened to Something him. Something switched inside of him. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was him leaving that structure that we had down there, place we lived, we called the bottom in South Alabama, and it was all family. Mm-hmm. And it was mother and father and everybody, the deacon and the church people all around all the time. Now, you talk in one of your TED Talks about the roof or the ceiling. Absolutely. It seems like that's a, a really strong metaphor here for what happened in your life. Talk about that. I see the father as the roof of the family. And you take any structure that you have, if the roof is not well, okay, if the roof is leaking, whatever, life becomes miserable, and sooner or later, the elements get in and stuff, and it just ruins everything in the house. It doesn't matter if you've got a $50,000 couch, if the roof is leaking, it's going to be ruined. And that's what happened to us. When my father took that shelter of protection off of us, we became poor, we became uh, unchurched, unloved, scared. He put all of that into our lives by not being the roof of our family. Yeah, how did your mom respond to all of that? I mean, that had to be a really hard transition for her as well. Today, I know what she went through, the battered wife syndrome or whatever they call it, where she was just, she was up here scared from South Alabama. She was scared of white people, so she would never talk to white people. And she didn't have a church family, so there was nobody to talk to. Mm. She didn't trust anybody. We wouldn't call the police or anything. So my father just had his way. And she was just trapped. She didn't know what to do. Six Mm. little boys and an abusive male in the house. That's not good. And where were you in the sibling line? I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. And so how did your brothers respond to the choices that you made in terms of where you were following in your dad's footsteps in many ways, right? Well, and not at first. For a while, a year or so, we would pray every day because we were taught to pray and things would get better and they did not get better. So we went from praying that, you know, my father would get better and not be mean. Then we went to praying that um, something would happen to him. He would have an accident accident and never come back home. And then we went to praying that we could kill him. You know, Mm. that's how our prayers changed. And so once I finally got, I didn't get rid of him, but I threatened my dad. I was old enough to run him away from the house with a gun to his head. My brothers just sort of looked up to me. You know, I I became their dad Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I protected them. And made sure they had food. So I was like a hero to them. I, you know, they didn't see me as the guy that was doing armed robberies and all this kind of stuff. They, that didn't matter. They were safe, and Mom was safe. That's a lot of responsibility to put on you as a teenager. Yes, that was a lot of responsibility. What changed in you that it took you to a place of wielding a gun and robbing people? Is it strictly based on the abuse of your dad, or was there... No, it it changed. You know, as a young boy, I was looking for somebody to help me, save me, make me... You know, not feeling safe is a horrible feeling. And so when a person comes along 
and says, I know how you can protect yourself. Here, take this gun. And by the way, if you, you're hungry, you need money. I'm going to show you how to rob people hmm. and stuff. And I idolized this guy. He was my big cousin. He later died defending me. Somebody had did something to me, and they killed him. I, he was like my hero. And anything, he could have told me to go um, jump off a 10-story building. I probably would have did it <laughs> because he, I don't know, there was something about him. He made me feel safe. He made hmm. me feel strong. Mm. and stuff and he taught me a bunch of things that I wish he had enough. that's what happened so you then as a young man took to owning the responsibility to protect your family yes and to try to make it in the world mm-hmm. in what was probably a sense of isolation because you were not with your extended family from Alabama mm-hmm. what happened next you started getting involved in creating this gang and how did that unfold for you and, and when did it finally tip over and we come from large families my family was only six boys that was a small family okay but you know 18 in my mother's family 13 wow. in my dad's family family down south you know nobody believed in abortion so and if you got pregnant you just had the kid yeah. and stuff and so big families yeah they all started migrating up here mm-hmm. both sides mm-hmm. and since we were like this the first people up here all of them connected with us and sort of morphed into the same lifestyle that we had okay. the man leaves the house and puts the wife on welfare so you have two incomes mm-hmm. that way the wife can stay home and take care of the kids and that sounds like oh okay that makes sense that's the craziest thing in the world because that broke up our marriages. That mm-hmm. broke up our households. Mm-hmm. And the men, you know, would have other girlfriends and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that became accepted in our family. And we stopped going to church. You know, the money made from drug dealing and pimping and every all the other nasty things was accepted in, in a God-fearing family. We became a criminal enterprise and nobody confronted it. Nobody confronted the killings, the, the drug dealing or anything. Gang meetings were held in my auntie's house, my mother's house. It How was, big did this all get? I mean, how many people? Well, um, I would say three, 300. 300 people. That were active participants. When they called in the National Guard, it was about 300. And so when did that all come to an end for you? And how did that? 93, 94. I was like the elder of the family. And my son, little Johnny, they called him. He had gotten his leg shot off and got brutally shot about 12, 13 times. I think it was. He should have died, but he didn't. I was in jail. And Johnny wanted the family to retaliate because we knew who shot him. But the family decided not to retaliate. And that caused Johnny to say, okay, I'm going to put everybody in jail. And that's really what broke up the family gang. My son turned state's evidence and put a number of people in jail. They were all first cousins. He spared me and my brothers, but it really just broke up the family. It caused some things to happen with me inside. So that's that's when my life started changing, when that happened. Yeah, talk about that faith transformation for you, because you're on fire now. And okay. you were on fire as a young kid, I'm guessing. And somewhere in the middle, that flame was snuffed out. And how did that get reignited for you? Yeah, I'd walked away from God, but then he started showing up in my life. I knew it was him. When I was in jail and my son was shot, they had me talk to him over the phone because he was crying out for me. That's when I realized I was a dad. I I didn't, before that point, he was was 16 years old. I had never fathered that kid. I mean, I gave gave him guns and taught him how to sell dope. But I just looked at him as another person. I didn't look at him as my son. And that happened. And then shortly after that, I got indicted for 50 felonies. And I was 
almost 38 years old, and thinking that I'd never get out of prison for the last time. And I just said, you know, God, if, if you're real, I don't care if I go to prison or whatever. Can you just make this stop? You know, can you can this just be it? Mm. It happened on a, on a day. I still remember the day because newspaper cameras were outside my office door. I had a job and they were doing the story on me. You know, we finally caught this criminal and we're finally going to put him in jail and on and on and on. And uh, I was inside praying and stuff. And I gave my life to Christ and I didn't tell anybody. Mm. It was nobody's business. It was I wasn't going to walk in the court with a Bible in my hand or a cross around my neck. Mm-hmm. I figured if God wanted to do something with this, he would do something with it without me saying a word. And I ended up getting probation. It just, <laughs> and I, then I knew it, it was God. I knew that it was God. There was nobody else. There were people in the, that were sniffing around the courtroom from my old gang days thinking that I had turned informant or something because how did I walk out of court? Yeah, how did that happen? Did you guys have the same judge? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, what happened? How did, how did you end up getting probation? Well, well, it had happened in a conversation. So I got out on bail and, you know, I'd given my life to Christ and I went, started going to church. Like I said, I didn't tell even my family members. I just just was getting ready to go to jail. In the day of court, I was sitting outside the courtroom, and the prosecutor who was prosecuting me, they had switched prosecutors because the one that was going to prosecute me hated my guts. He had known me all my life. He was the head prosecutor for the career criminal division, and he was just going to bury me. He had already sent my sons, my cousins, and it was his personal vendetta to just get all of us off the street, and they had caught me red-handed doing all my stuff. And so I was going to jail, and all of a sudden, he's not there that day, and that never happens. That prosecutor would see his way, especially at sentencing. And we had gotten a sentencing down to to where I'd only do 10 years. And to me, only 10 was wonderful. I said, thank you, Jesus. You know, (laughs) went from 50 to 10. You know, that's a blessing. Mm. Career criminal division, they never make deals. And they made a deal with me. But the day of court, the prosecutor was switched. And another prosecutor and me were sitting outside the courtroom for an hour waiting to go in. And we just started talking about things. He didn't know who I was. We didn't know who he was. I didn't know who he was. (laughs) Is that right? We ended up talking. We went to the same church. (laughs) And we talked about the Vikings. We talked about just life and our kids and stuff. And he said, okay, who's your client? Because I always dress in a suit. And I said, I don't have any clients. And he said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm going to court. And he said, so am I, this guy named John Turnipseed. He started talking really bad about me. And I just smiled. And he said, look at this case file and stuff. And he said, whew. And I said, well, that's me you're talking about. He said, I can't believe it. He said, you're not the guy in this thing. And when we went to court, he became my defense attorney. He told the judge that I shouldn't be in prison. Wow. That I should continue being a teacher. I was a teacher and a good guy. I went to his church and this, that, and the other. So I didn't have to say anything in my defense. And my lawyer was just shocked. And the judge said, to this day, that judge will tell you, I don't know why I gave him probation. But sometimes you just do it. The judge and I are good friends. Yeah, I saw that. I saw the clip of that judge yeah. saying that. And I, listening to you tell a story though gives me chills. If that isn't an answer to prayer, mm-hmm. I mean, I really have a hard time right. defining one because that's that's just clearly, you know, yeah, we'll swap you a new prosecutor. Plus, we're going to give you an opportunity just to get life on life for a few minutes before you have to go into your courtroom, mm-hmm. and then to have the judge agreeing to that. It's just amazing. That's yeah. amazing, amazing story. All right, so you found a new life, really Mm -hmm. a resurrection for you. You set out now on a new mission, right? Talk about that, because now you got to put your faith to work. 
right? And, yeah. uh, and, and so how are you fueled in doing that today? What are you doing? Originally, I was working at a school teaching computer programming. I learned it in prison, and I was really good at it. And I walked away from that job, you know, very good job. And I just said, God, you know, just place me wherever you want to place me. Well, you know, it sounded crazy. You know, my wife thought I was I lost my mind. And I said, I'm just not supposed to be doing this. And this guy named Art Erickson had started a center for fathering. He asked me, asked me to be the director of it. You know, I had no prior experience at being a director of any sort. I managed things and ran the gang, and I agreed. And that was um, 20 years ago. And uh, I just worked there helping thousands of men reconnect with their kids, but more importantly, talk to them about the character of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Put me exactly where he wanted me to be. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, we've had Art on the program, mm-hmm. and I, I think, I did I see something in one of your snippets that Art said he, you were the the first guy to walk through his program door. Is was, that right? I was the first guy. The guy that was running it recruited me to be a facilitator. Uh-huh. And um, so I just, you know, went over there just just to see what they were talking about. And when they start talking about father absence, it just, I, I, I went to every group for four years <laughs> um, because I, I didn't know what having a father felt like, yeah. you know, and I had missed it. There's a hole in my heart the size of a father. Yeah. And stuff, and I just volunteered and everything. And Art had been a guy that had been trying to influence me for years, you know. But I would never talk to him. And now he had a program that I was benefiting from. And you've served as a campus pastor now, or served yes. at Urban Ventures for twenty. Yeah, I was. I was a Center for Father director for seventeen years, and then I became vice president, then executive vice president, and then the campus pastor. So, which is the, my most favorite job. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. I mean, of course, we love our corporate sponsors, but I really love it when we have an episode that's sponsored by our listeners. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree with you. It's the best compliments we ever get is knowing that people are out there that want to invest in this to keep this going. And I think everybody knows, I hope by now, that we are doing this as really as a passion project. Neither of us take any money from it. In fact, it costs us more than we are getting even in sponsorships to put this program out on the air. So every little bit helps. That's right. So if you want to help invest in this and keep this thing going, we'd love to see your support. Just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And remember, every donation you make is a tax deductible contribution and comes from the bottom of our heart. A sincere thank you. So what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in that role that men are dealing with that you're trying to help address? What are some of those things that keep a a dad to be engaged? I mean, I'm really taken by your comment that you didn't kind of see your son as your son until he was 16. Is that that common in the people that That, you're talking to? That is very common. You know, it was one of the practices of not, I've never signed a birth certificate. I've never admitted legally to being a father to my kids Mm -hmm. because the system was going to take care of them. And, you know, I've feel horrible about that now. But, you know, knowing that I was never going to be like a father because I'd never seen a father. I didn't know what a father even was supposed to do. So all I know is that if you kept your kids fed and kept a roof over their head, that's all they needed. So I never had a father attachment to my kids. I loved them, but man, it's sort of like if you've never 
play baseball. You don't know how to swing a bat, you know. And uh, a lot of our guys, they're just disconnected from their kids through the court systems, you know, uh, whatever. And be disconnected long enough, it feels pretty natural. So how are you encouraging dads in a practical way to get connected or to recognize their identity as a dad, first of all, and then to engage with their sons and daughters? Well, you know, the thing I like to talk to guys about is their own father absence issues. And once they see how unfair it was that they, most 90% of them have father issues. They see how unfair it was, you know, they begin to understand how unfair it is to deprive their kids of a father. Doesn't matter if you and your girlfriend or wife or whatever have broken up, and it doesn't matter that you as a man should find a way to mend that fence so that you can be in that kid's life because that kid was given to you and stuff. And once guys get that father fire going, it's hard to put it out. I've seen some transformations that you'd never believe in people. What's your favorite story? My favorite story is uh, one of the guys that uh, works for me was really having problems. You know, he was a veteran, went through some issues, you know, being a veteran. And uh, this mother had taken his kid from him. And I kept telling him that, you know, if he just believed that his child would be with him. And he didn't believe it. I worked with him for three years. And finally, he just one day he called me from jail and he said, man, I'm, I'm just ready to try what you were talking about, just surrendering and stuff. He got out of jail. He went to treatment. And today, this is five years later, he not only works for us, he's got custody of his child. His child is a straight-A student at uh, Crystal Ray Jesuit High School. The mother of the child and him are friends. He's a homeowner. He's just really just living a very good life, and he has the apple of his eye with him. And I see him every day, so Mm -hmm. I get to see that. And also, I got custody of my grandson and stuff, which uh, he's quite a guy. Now, that's the one thing about grandparenting. I'm a recent grandparent here of a couple of years. You get a chance to start over and do things a little bit differently with your grandkids. Oh, how, yeah. how has your heart changed from, you know, looking at your grandkids now to, you know, your, your other kids when you were much younger? Every mistake that I made with my sons, I don't make with my grandson. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm present in his life. I can love him and hug him and affirm him. Uh, my grand child was actually sold for crack to a drug dealer and the police raided the house that's how i found him and uh they gave him to me uh-huh. uh, even with my 10 felonies and everything i went to court uh-huh. and they gave him to me and i started raising him and because i went to that fathering class i knew the things to do you know, with him and the things not to do, how to discipline him. I had to learn a lot of things, and I didn't know why. Why am I sitting in a fathering class? I ain't got no kids at home. Well, God was preparing me for this kid that would be three years old when I encountered him. When you know how to parent, parenting is a great, rewarding experience. Still has some... (laughs) Oh, so yeah. little, he's 13 now. He'll be 13 in January. and uh, But it's just, I know what to do. So it's uh, been so great for me. Me and my wife have even thought of adopting now. You know, we're like, oh, we don't want everyone to lose this experience. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll get over that in a couple of years. <laughs> you learn so much, too. Yeah, it's fatherhood. When you confront a young dad, perhaps for the first time, maybe just meet somebody, or maybe one of our listeners is, a, is you know, a young father like, 
Armin, you know, mm-hmm. what would you tell the Armin's of the world as a dad that, uh, what's the, what's the one counsel that you would give them based on all the experiences you've had? In you know, life? yeah, as a dad, it, it doesn't matter what happens in life, you know, that should determine, you know, your fatherhood, you know, you're a father and just like Jesus never left us. He never forsaken us. He never, he's always present and stuff. We might not can reach that level like Jesus does, you know, in our lives, but we can be in the ballpark. We can be there. And a child that knows they have a father that loves them will do so much better in life, be so much stronger, and you won't have to worry about them as much later on. Mm-hmm. What are, what's God birthing in you right now in terms of your next bold idea? What are, what are you wanting to see happen in your own life as it unfolds here in the next several years? Well, I'd like to do ministry, period. What I mean by that ministry is not just the church. Um, it's just I'd like to just sit and talk with people, period, help them through life challenges and marriage counseling and things of that nature. That's what I'd like to do just for the rest of my life, me me and my wife as a team. Just wherever you are, be present and minister to what the needs are around you. Is that what I'm hearing? Yep. Period. Yeah. Well, that's really trusting God for whatever the opportunity is. It sure sounds like he showed up in your life. Absolutely. What a wonderful story. John, thank you so much for being on the program. I really uh, learned a lot from you just about the importance of being a present as a dad. But how can our listeners learn more about you if they want to uh, find out more about Urban Ventures or about you, John? Okay. You can go to Urban Ventures Minneapolis, or you can if you type in my name, John Turnipseed, there's not a lot of us running around. John Turnipseed. Turnipseed, just like it sounds, T-U-R-N-I-P-S-E-D. A bunch of stuff will come up. I did a TED Talk, that'll come up. Some movies will come up. My book will come up. Urban Ventures will come up. So I'm sort of interconnected with Urban Ventures. Yeah, you know? we'll, and we'll also put uh, some links to those uh, resources in our show notes as well, make it a little easier for our listeners. But he's absolutely <laughs> right. I, I Googled him as well, and uh, there's just a whole ton of material out there for you. John, thanks again. What a, what a wonderful time to be with you. Really appreciate your being on the program. Well, thank you. Well, our I mean, that was quite quite a discussion I think we just had with John. So that was your first time here. That was my first time, and I know you've had the opportunity to be with him on a number of occasions. And, you know, for our audience that may not be aware of the joke that I laid <laughs> was asking Armin whether they had the same judge. You have to go back to episode number one, <laughs> and you'll hear the similarities between John's story and Armin's story. And it's almost uncanny. And in fact, it's uh, it's really remarkable how God's grace dispenses itself in two different people at two different times in almost identical manner. <laughs> and really, really amazing. So go back to episode number one of the Bold Idea podcast to, to catch Armin's story. And you're, I think that'll make this episode even more more, more amazing just yeah. to see God working in that way. So obviously, there's. I mean, I literally did have chills when yeah. he was telling that story. Yeah, it's and, a crazy story. And yeah. you know, the, the thing that he said that really struck me, I mean, I, of all the stuff that's unusual about his story, I mean, because you don't meet a guy who's hey. who's led a you know a crime gang of what is it, 300 members, 400, yeah. how many, I forget how I many he said, yeah. 300, yeah. I mean, you don't, that's not something you run into every day, right? At least not in my little, <laughs> little sheltered <laughs> corner of the world. But, you know, the thing that really stood out or astonished me most about what he said was that he hadn't engaged as a heart of a father until his son was 16. Hmm. And that just really struck me in a very interesting way because, as you know, I've had my own challenges with dealing with my own kind of father wounds, mm-hmm. and my dad wasn't anything like his dad. Right. You know, my my dad just was present, but emotionally and in every other way absent. I mean, sure. he's checked out. Yeah, And I wonder if maybe... 
he too had that same kind of detachment that he really himself didn't feel like he was a dad. He might just felt like he was just a passenger in life in this house that he happened to share with these other people. Hmm. And I, the, the thought occurred to me when he said that, maybe that's just where my dad was at. And he didn't know that that's what you do because he really didn't have that role model for him, not having a dad present in his own life. Right. So it just made me think about how important it is to have identity about our roles when we're, we're parents or perhaps when we're doing anything, even in uh, a pursuit that we might have, how important it is to own the thing that you're engaging in. And to me, that was like a big takeaway from this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking back to a conversation I had with a friend who is a psychologist and a pastor. He's part of a really big church out in California. And he said something really interesting to me. He said, I spend a lot of time counseling people. They, they do this specific type of prayer counseling. And uh, he said, it's amazing to me how many people have issues with God because they take their understanding of what a, what a father is from their father experiences and copy and paste that on God's face. Yeah. And after you go through all these counseling sessions, you realize their issues aren't with God. They're just blaming God. Reality is all their issues are father issues, but mm. their biological father, not their heavenly father. And he says, I have to spend so much time separating those two before they can have a new understanding of God because the understanding they have is literally a broken concept of God. Yeah, and that I think that's so true. And how can we trust God for a a new bold idea that we might want to have if if right. we're hearing the voice of an earthly father yep. in its place? Somebody once told me something that I thought was just um, was really brilliant, and I put it to use, and I found it's absolutely true. They said, if you really want to get at somebody's heart, you really want to try to break down and get a little bit more vulnerable with somebody, ask them about their relationship with their dad. Yeah. That's the quickest path. <laughs> Path. That's a great idea. <laughs> it's the quickest path to vulnerability. Yeah. You know, it's just to say, tell me about your dad. Mm. And it, because even if it's a good story, you know, of a healthy, vibrant relationship with a father, you'll see somebody light up. Yeah. And they'll talk about the great times they have with their dad, the respect that they have for their dad, or that's that sort of thing. And if it's, if it's not, <laughs> yeah. you'll hear about that too, just <laughs> as we did, you know, in today's episode. So the relationship of a father to a child does have such impact. Yeah. And uh, and it's such an easy thing to take for granted whether we are the father or we are the child and yeah. and you know for for many guys that are older and married we're both. And working both sides of that is uh, such a vital undertaking. Absolutely. And I think it's just one of those things when you hear a story like John's you can't help but think about the gospel and think about the father-son relationship from a father God to Jesus Christ type relationship, uh -huh. you know, and the way he sacrificed. I mean, it's like the very most basic gospel presentation you can think of becomes the most powerful gospel presentation you can think of when you see the opposite of it, right? Or it's like, here's a dad that sacrificed his own kids. And then you think about it from a biblical sense. Here's a dad who sacrificed his own kid in an entirely different way. It's so moving. It just makes you realize the faith that you're a part of is the most loving, most grace-filled, most sacrificial faith this world has ever known. Mm -hmm. That a father who loves his kid more than you could ever imagine sacrificed not because he didn't love him, but the exact opposite, mm -hmm. you know, but because he loved 
us. He loved the John Turnip seed. He loved the low life like me. Well, that's that's the stuff that we will mine forever. You know, yeah. those are the those are the great depths of God's love that we will never fully comprehend. Yeah. You know, as I was listening to John's story, I guess the takeaway for me, there's a few things. One, as as a male and as a father, I am needed. You know, yeah. so I, I need to see my role as influencer as John is today mm. and as the absence of that that he got, you saw where that took him. But I also need to recognize that I'm vulnerable. You know, he came from a setting that was uh, very supportive, God-honoring, and on fire, came to a new setting and lost his way. You know, fortunately, God wasn't done with him, (laughs) which is the third point I got, which is, you know, I'm not finished. You know, there's some things in my life, there's things in your life where we can continue to press ahead. And so I think if anything, that's kind of what I got from John's story. It's a story of wonderful redemption and transformation and the hope is yet the best to come. I love that he's investing in his grandkids and yeah. and, uh, and the way in which he's investing now in young fathers to help turn them about. So gosh, yeah. w- what a great story. I'm glad you were able to get him on our yeah, program. I am glad too. Um, I love that guy. I love getting to know him. He, he always has more stories, let me tell you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, w- we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bold Idea Podcast and that you got something from it as well. If you did, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us at boldideapodcast.com slash 72. <laughs> you will see the show notes there and you will also get all the links. Well, no, I don't want to promise that. You will get a few of the links <laughs> from John Turnipseed <laughs> because there are literally a lot. But at least you'll get some some of the things that we saw that we think you might have an interest in about his life. And uh, we'd love for you to leave a comment and uh, let us know what you think of the episode. So you can go there or you can call us at our show line at 612-568-IDEA, 612-568-4332. So that's it for this week. And until next time, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. Say so long, be blessed, and go make God's stuff happen in your life. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.